Let's pray. We're going we're gonna to cover some ground tonight. God, we thank you and praise you for the day. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and that we, love is found in you. And there is no love higher, wider, deeper, or truer than your love, O oh God. Thank you, Father, that we found you, you found us. Thank you, Lord, that we have a relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't just live life under the sun as Solomon's experiment continues. Really, he had adapted himself to this lifestyle, Lord, and that's a shame. And we don't ever want to get pulled back into the world, Lord. We want to continually pursue after you. So put that in our hearts, Lord, as we sang. Give us that hunger and that thirst for you. Father, help us to see what the wisest man who ever lived has learned, and that is that without you, there's not much to life. And so just help us see that again tonight. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, we've said throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, this is a great book for your non-Christian friends to read, because if they are interested in actually reading the Bible, um, this is a book that will show them, hey, some smart guy figured out a long time ago that the things that you're pursuing are going to end up in vanity. They're going to end up worthless and, and without any weight in your life, and you're going to be disappointed. So why not? Invest yourself, put yourself in uh, the arms of a loving God, and pursue after Him. And, uh, and that's kind of the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. We took a break from the normal vanity of vanities, all is vanity, there's nothing new under the sun, last week in studying the first half of chapter 5, where, where Solomon kind of takes a break and says, hey, let's look at what life is like with God, and let's look at more than that, let's look at the way we need to interact with a holy God. And so it, it was the way I broke it out was we're looking, he was talking about how we should act before we go to church, while we're at church, and then what we do with the information we learn at church, what we do after church, just how we, how we are to behave when it comes to attending in church. And we talked about that we should have our hearts prepared as we enter through the doors here at Calvary Chapel Columbus. Hopefully you're coming with a hunger already stirred in you to learn more. And then our time of worship is to exalt his name, not so much to prepare our hearts. It's more about him and less about us when our hearts come in prepared. And then while we're here, we're here to listen to the word of God. And then afterwards, we don't make foolish vows. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it is what we learned. And so let's be wise in the words that we have. And that's the reoccurring theme of Calvary Chapel Columbus of late, you know, between Ecclesiastes 5 and James chapter 3 and James chapter 1. We got to weigh our words, and we're even going to see that a little bit tonight. We ended with verse 7, which we read verse 7 last week, ended this way, but fear God. And if we, if we just keep those three words in the forefront of our mind, we'll be doing well. But fear God. If we live a life in fear of God, and by fear just so we all understand, we're not talking about cowering in fear or being afraid, but fear as in a deep reverence for, that I value God's opinion of me higher than I value any other, that I value what God would have to say above everything else, that I would have a deep reverence for him. But now Solomon's going to go back into the theme of Ecclesiastes, back to life under the sun, as you would. It says in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent 
perversion of justice and righteousness in a province. Do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official and higher officials over them. So back to life underneath the sun and talking once again about oppression of the poor and violent perversions of justice. Now, we don't have anything like that these days, do we? I mean, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Life is, we're okay now, right? We don't have violent, or we don't, we don't have perversion of justice or, oh wait, yeah, we do. And probably more so today than ever before as we grow closer to the return of Christ. But what Solomon is saying, because he says, do not marvel at the matter. What he's saying is, guys, we shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. We shouldn't be surprised when a pagan acts like a pagan. That shouldn't throw us off our our game at all. That's what we should expect. In fact, most pagans are more devoted to their paganness than most Christians are to their Christianness. They, 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 they see no need for hypocrisy, where often we do. We have, we have to, we think we have to balance that world godliness thing, and we're, if we're not relevant, they won't notice us. And so we try to dabble real close to that line. But we shouldn't be surprised when the, when the world acts like the world. That's the way it is. We are to be a shining light, a bright city on the hill. In order for that to be effective, the world is in darkness. So we need to recognize that. It says in verse 9, Moreover, the prophet of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. That's an interesting thought. Even the king, the most powerful man, the richest man, the the one that has all the authority that is in control, quote-unquote, of the country, even he is served from the field. In other words, if you ain't got grain, you don't have a kingdom, right? If you don't have grain for long enough, you lose your authority, you lose your power, you lose your wealth, you lose everything you have. Everything that you have is based on whether or not you get food, which is given by God. He's the one that makes sure that we don't have a drought. He's the one that makes sure the, the, the seed germinates and, and it does what it is supposed to do. So even the most powerful man in the world is relying upon God, whether they recognize it or not, because everybody is connected to the field. We all, you know, I know you go to Kroger and you buy your steak, but that steak was a cow. It did have a face on it at one point. You know, and well, in order for the cow to grow up so it can be slaughtered so that you can have your hamburger, it has to eat grain. It has to eat grass. We're all dependent upon God's provision through the field. Now, verses 10 through 20, Solomon's going to debunk some myths, four different myths about wealth. He's going to debunk some myths about money. I can't think of a better person to do that. Solomon was the richest man who's ever lived. Who they don't they don't we don't know what his wealth amassed to. We don't know, you know, was he a trillionaire, a multi, you know, how would it relate to today's money? I, people have speculated, but all we know is that silver was of no value in his kingdom. 
And we have never gotten to that point again. They, they, they were like, we just oh, oh, throw the silver with the potatoes. We don't, we don't really need it. There was so much gold. We, I'd like some silver today. I don't know about you, but I'd be all right with just some silver. I, I could, you know, I'm working on stainless steel and whatever. So he's going to debunk some myths about wealth. Verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. So myth number one is that wealth satisfies. That if you have enough, eventually you will be satisfied. That's the myth. Of course, we all know this because most of us grew up on Veggie Tales, right? Veggie Tales, Madam Blueberry. You've seen Madam Blueberry, or if you haven't, I'll just quickly tell you the story that Madam Blueberry <laughs> wants everything there is in the world, and they build a stuff mart next to her house, and she goes to stuff mart and runs her credit cards to the max and purchases everything so much so that her house falls over. She lives in a treehouse, and there's so much stuff in it that it eventually just vomits everything out into the world. And she's never, she's always blue. That's the song she sings. I'm so blue, right? I won't embarrass myself or make you listen to that. So, but that's the point is that she's never satisfied. Why? Because of what Solomon says here in verse 10, the love of silver, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. That's the truth. That's the, the myth is that wealth would satisfy. The truth is wealth does not satisfy. Why? Because the longing that you're trying to satisfy is put there by God. And we cannot satisfy a spiritual longing with a material possession. People will try, and you know what? For a minute, it works. When you buy that new shiny boat and you take it out for the first season, you love it. And you, you just, you're, you're giddy, you're excited, you're, but then the maintenance comes. And then the upkeep comes, and then you got to find a place to store it. And then, and then you, well, the neighbor's got a bigger boat than you. And then, and eventually, you're not satisfied with it anymore. Why? Because you're trying to satisfy a spiritual longing with a material thing. So it'll mask that longing for a minute, but it will never truly satisfy. Myth one, well satisfies, debunked. Myth two is in verse 11. It says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? Myth number two, wealth solves problems. <laughs> if I just have money, I won't have any issues again. I, I won't have any problems again. That's a myth. Not a mythter. <laughs> Another veggie tale. Myth number two, wealth solves problems. The truth, wealth creates problems. The more money you have, the more stress you have, the more issues you have, the more problems you have. Consider Solomon's daily provision as he provided for his court for meals every day. 30 measures of fine flour, 90 measures of meal, that's 600 bushels every day. You ever filled a bushel of apples? That takes a minute. 600 bushels of grain every 
day. Ten fatted oxen, twenty field oxen, they're evidently leaner, one hundred sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl, doesn't even number them. So consider this, you have all this money, Solomon probably the wealthiest man that's ever lived, but he's providing for this massive court. He has to arrange the meals. Just think of the meals, the logistics of the meals every day. Consider the firewood. To cook, to cook 20 fatted oxen and 20 field oxen, 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fowl, how much firewood do you need every day? Because they didn't have the you know, Westinghouse oven that you just go turn it on. They were... And so there were full-time employees just cutting firewood. More logistics, more issues, and the more money, the more problems. And then that means the more people, and people come with baggage, and there's always issues, and there's always wealth does not solve problems, it creates them. Myth number two. Verse 12, myth number three. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Myth number three, wealth gives you peace of mind. Wealth would give you peace of mind. The more money you have, the more at ease you are, the more at peace you have in your life. If I, just, if I can write a check for whatever the issue is, then I don't have to worry about anything. That is a myth. That simply is not true. The truth is wealth robs our peace. Does that mean we should strive to live homeless and, you know, beans and rice and that's all we ever eat? No, not necessarily. It's not that we, we throw out all of our money. Recognize money is a tool given to us by God to be used for His glory. We're not to be used by money. We're to use money. But don't think that the more money that you get, the more peace of mind you get. That's not true. It's the exact opposite. Wealth robs our peace. John D. Rockefeller, pretty wealthy guy, yeah? Everybody's heard of him at least, probably. He, he, he was a pretty wealthy guy in his day. At the age of 53, he was the only billionaire in the world. So we're talking, I don't know, 100 years ago, somewhere around there. No other billionaires. Now billionaires are a dime a dozen. You know, we see them every day. But when he was 53 years old, I've never seen a billionaire. I'd like to. Just once, maybe. Have them tied, that'd be nice. But John D. Rockefeller, at the age of 53, he's the world's only billionaire. He was earning $1 million a week. That'd be all right. Or would it? That's kind of the point of this message. While he was earning $1 million a week, and at the age of 53, a billionaire, he suffered from insomnia, could not sleep at all, and could only eat milk and crackers. His entire diet consisted on milk and crackers because his stomach was so full of ulcers, nothing else would sit. So you've got the world's wealth in your pocketbook. You could buy whatever you want to eat. I mean, that's what I would, if I had money, right? That's what it would be about. It'd be about the food I could get, right? And so, but you have the world's money and you're eating milk and crackers because you're worried about your money. It's interesting. Something happened in John D. Rockefeller where at one point in his life he made a choice and he started giving his money away. He, he became a philanthropist and he, and he, he strove to, to help other people with what God had given him. 
Whether he recognized that or not, I don't know. But his health greatly improved. He was able to sleep. He was able to eat again. The ulcers got better. He actually lived to 98 years old. But when he was 53, what you thought, when you think you'd have the world's peace because you have the world's money, it did not bring peace. Myth number three, wealth gives peace of mind. It just does not. Um, let's strive for what uh, is said in Proverbs chapter 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What do we strive for? Contentment, satisfaction, just enough. Not so much that I've got to steal in order to feed my family, but not so much that I would forget God and forget to thank Him for all that He's given me. That's what we strive for. What is that amount for you? I don't know. What is that amount for me? It's different than what it is for you. So let's strive for it. Verse number or myth number four in verse 13 and 14. There are <clears throat> there's a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. Myth number four, wealth produces security. Wealth produces security. If I just have money, then I'll be taken care of the rest of my life. If I just have this, I'll be okay. Well, there's no guarantee that you'll have money tomorrow. There's no promise. You know, I've got my 401k. Well, what how, you, do you understand how the 401ks work? That they're invested in, that money is invested in other things. And what happens if the market tanks? You're, the value of your 401k de- is depleted. You know, there was a whole generation that grew up thinking they were going to get Social Security uh, to find out now as they're starting to be eligible for Social Security, there is no money there. There's nothing promised. The, think about Job. Job lived all right. He had a lot going on. And in one day, it was all taken from him. That can happen to you or I in an instant. Wealth does not produce security because nothing is guaranteed. Like he says in 14, those riches perish through misfortune. You know, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what's going to be required of us. We don't know what's going to happen to us with our finances. Wealth does not produce security. Our hope is in him alone. Verse 15. So that's the four myths. Continuing on, he says, as he, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. You, you know this, you've heard this before, you can't take it with you, right? One out of one, one, out of one people dies, everybody's going to die, and you don't take it with you. Even if you're buried in your pink Cadillac, which I guess I heard happened, you don't see it in the afterlife. You know, they got it wrong in the pyramids. They, they you know, elaborately uh, um, decorated the pyramids so that they would have all this wealth in the afterlife. They got it wrong. You don't take it with you. There are no U-Hauls behind the hearse, right? You get the idea. You, you can't take it with you. You, go in, you come out naked. Anybody born with clothes on? That would be weird, right? Everybody born naked, 
Everybody's going to die naked. You know, you, essentially, you take it. You can't. You know, you can't take it with you. They cover up the body. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Tracking? You, you can't take it with you. You're not going to wake up with a, with money in your pockets, but you can send it ahead into the afterlife. How do I? Where do I write that check? Well, it's sowing into the kingdom of God. It's investing in the things of eternity. It's recognizing that money is given to us by God in order to be used as a tool for his kingdom and his glory. And it's a resource for us and our family, but it's a resource that's to be used elsewhere as well, as long as it brings glory to God. Use it as a tool for a kingdom and you send it ahead. Verse 16, this also is a severe evil just as exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness and has much sorrow and sickness and anger. I think you kind of get it. Money doesn't buy happiness. I'd like to try. Maybe that's what you're saying. Just give me one shot with it. Money doesn't buy happiness. Let's just accept that and learn what God would have to say to us. Verse 18, here's what I've seen. Thank you, Solomon. Appreciate what you've seen. Here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy, underline that, and enjoy, and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Money doesn't buy happiness. But contentment is, rather, contentment is found in Jesus, in God. The gift that God gives us, us having a relationship with him, the gift that God gives us in that is we're able to enjoy life. And I don't think, I don't think it's possible to enjoy life outside of the grace of God. It is only in that grace, which is extended to even those that are outside the kingdom of God, it's called provenient grace, that we get to enjoy things. That's what he's saying. What's the good thing? What's the gift of God? To enjoy the good of all his labor. It's in having a relationship with God that I was just, I was talking with Deanne before church started tonight. You know, she's like, did you work today? I'm like, I don't know if I, what I do, I'd call it work. I so enjoy being a pastor. I so so greatly appreciate what God has given me in letting me lead this flock that I don't know that I'd classify it as work. Yeah, I worked all day. I studied. I prayed. I you know, sent out some emails, and I, I had a board meeting this morning. But I don't know that because I found the, the contentment in God that God has given me, I enjoy it. Is it work? You get paid for it. What, what you know, but... But it's in, 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 that, in what God has given me, I find joy. And that's, that's the gift of God. 
it says in Philippians uh, 4, 11 and 12, Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, to be content. That's not what he meant by state. Whatever condition I am in, to be content. Let me read it again. Now that I, uh, now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know, meaning I have nothing. And I know how to, uh, how to abound. I know when I have had plenty. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. What's the next verse? 4.13. Right. Thank you, Randy. I didn't, everybody's like, oh, am I, wait, what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You guys know that one. Right. Philippians 4.13. It's in Christ that I can be content with very little. It's in Christ that I can be perfectly content and enjoy much. Live, you know, we got caviar one day and hot dogs the next. Cool. Dave used to say, and you know, every, every meal's a feast, every day's a holiday when you're in Christ. You can enjoy it. How about 1 Timothy 6.6? 6? Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you want great gain in this life? You want quote-unquote wealth or satisfaction? Learning to be content with what God has given you and living the godly life. That's success. That's enjoyment. That's peace. That's all those things that you're searching for in wealth that wealth cannot provide can be found in Christ. We still got two chapters to go. 6.1, there's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's a common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it's an evil affliction. So now he's speaking about those who have riches but can have no enjoyment because they don't recognize that it's from the hand of God. Richness, peace, enjoyment, they're found in those things that shape our character, not in, not in our circumstances. If a man begets a hundred children, could you imagine? I feel sorry for that lady. Are you guys with me? I'm just up here. All right. You're like, Chris, it's Wednesday. Are you serious about two more chapters? Yeah, actually I am. <clears throat> If a man gets a hundred children and lives many years, Solomon had a thousand wives, roughly. Seven hundred concubines, or seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines, vice versa. Who's, you know. How many kids did Solomon have? His son Rehoboam had 88 kids. Yeah, could you imagine? So how many, you know, if a man begets a hundred children, that's a father's day right there, and lives many years. So that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better than he. You got to understand in that culture, they measured your wealth by how many kids you had, by your family, by that you, you, you know, they measured the sheep and the kids and, and that was the measurement of wealth. So Solomon's saying, imagine having a hundred kids. That's a wealthy person in this society. 
He's saying if you haven't found, or if, you're not, if your soul's not satisfied with goodness or the things of God, you're better off had you been a stillborn child. Better, not, better off not even being born. For it comes in vanity and it departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness, speaking of this stillborn child. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, and has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. Without the goodness of God, life is just woeful. These are strong, strong language Solomon is using. And the point being, we have a deep need for God. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise than the fool? What more, what does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Better is the sight of the eyes. In other words, better what you can see than the wandering of desire. Does that make sense now? The language is kind of weird there. Better what you can see than the wandering of desire. Better what you can lay your eyes on. Your wife is better than the woman on the other side. Your home, your family, your possessions are better than the wandering of desire. What God has provided to you is better than the grass being greener on the other side. He's kind of speaking in verses 6 and 7 and, and 8 that the, of the, the, the appetite that is never satisfied. I think about gluttony when I think about that. You know, the, what is the sin of gluttony? It's pushing your body beyond its limits when it comes to food. It's going above what your appetite would tell you, going beyond what your body's like screaming at you, no, I don't want dessert. But you're saying, I'll take one of those. That's, if you try to put that down my throat, we will explode. But you say, I'll take one anyway, maybe to go. Just so you can eat it when you get home, not that you feel any better, just speaking from experience. Gluttony is when desire is pushed beyond capacity, and that's what happens with any type of appetite. It doesn't have to be with food. It can be with greed, sex, all of it. Better is what you can see, in, or better is, is what you can see, the sight of your eyes. Verse 10, whatever one man, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he? Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? Notice verse 10, it says, And he cannot contend with him, capital H, who is mightier than he. Who is mightier than man? God himself. And we cannot contend with him. In other words, God is sovereign over all things. He is in control. We cannot contend with him. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know if our wealth or anything is going to be taken from us. So we can't rest in those things, but we can rest in the one who knows what is coming. We can't contend with him, but we can rest in him. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he, pass, which he passes like a shadow, life's a vapor, David would say. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Life is short. 
We cannot see around the corner. It's better to trust in God. That's what he's saying. Who knows what is good for a man in life? The answer, God. God knows. 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. That sounds weird. What's he talking about there? Well, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is costly perfume. So a good name is better than, did you guys see in the news last night, they, they, they shut down the Hamilton courthouse yesterday because somebody brought in a bottle of perfume that looked like a grenade. <laughs> I'm like, what lady, and I don't know what kind of perfume it is, would look at that bottle and go, oh, I think I want that one. Maybe, I mean, I guess you buy things based on smell. But anyway, perfume, that's what he's talking about there. A good name is better than perfume. Anytime we talk about perfume, I think of Michelle's grandmother, who didn't have perfume, she had marinade. And anytime you walked in your, her house, <laughs> it was like there was a cloud when you, when you opened the door. <laughs> Grandma! <laughs> She's with the Lord now. A good name's better than that. Precious ointment. What, a good name, what did they mean? A good reputation. That, that we would be esteemed in the eyes of men, that people would value us for who we are. That's better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth, meaning that you spent your life, when you're born, you don't have a reputation of any sort. You have to spend your life building that reputation. So that's why if you, a man with good reputation, his day of death is better than his day of birth because he's recognized as a man with good reputation. It really kind of places the emphasis on relationship over possessions. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's all about relationship. Verse 2, better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. One out of one people dies. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Strong words, yeah. It's a reality check. It's to say that you learn more, you grow more from a funeral than a birthday party. What do you, well, anytime we brush up against death, it causes us to think about it a little bit, doesn't it? it, it maybe it opens our eyes just a little bit more to say, you know what, that's going to be me in that casket one day. And so wisdom is, is grown in those moments of recognizing that it happens to us all. And so it's better for us to kind of mature in that way in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. Those are good things, but we mature, we grow up, we become men and women of good reputation by recognizing what happens in the house of mourning? Death gives life perspective. It causes us to take inventory. Better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for the man to hear the song of fools. I didn't tell you at the beginning of chapter 7, sorry. A little caveat here. Between the beginning of chapter 7 through just about to the end of the book, 
Solomon is now giving us his advice. This is almost, almost like the Proverbs of the old age. You know, he wrote the book of Proverbs. Now he's kind of saying, and there's a lot of truth nuggets that we're just going to bounce through them all. But that, that's kind of the end of the book, chapter 7 through, the, through midway through 12. He's just kind of, this is Solomon's advice. Uh, better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Yeah, it's, it's good that we have friends who are willing to speak into our lives hard truths. It's by those things that we're matured. For like the cackle, crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. What does that mean? The crackling of thorns. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to use thorns as kindling or as firewood. But they make a great sound. It sounds like you're getting a lot done. But there is no heat. There is no fuel. There is a, they burn out quickly and nothing gets produced of it. That's what the laugher, laughter of a fool is like. It's fine for a minute. This also is vanity. It leaves you wanting. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. Oppression grieves the wise. Verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The end of the thing is better than its beginning. That's an interesting statement. And I think life under the sun, you may find times when that is not true. That the end of a thing is not always better than the beginning. But in Christ, that is always true. That the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Why? Because he brings things to perfection. He brings things to maturation. We grow in him. There's a day coming. The end of this life is when we see him face to face. And the end of, the, of this thing will be better. That's always true in Christ. John chapter 2. Jesus turns the water into wine. Right? He brings out the better stuff later. At the end. The rest of the world. That's what even, even the, the porter says at the wedding feast. Right? The rest of the world, everybody else, they, they, they get the people drunk on the, on the good wine and then they bring out the cheap stuff. Not you, Jesus. We had the bad stuff first, but now that you've turned this water into wine, this is the good stuff. Because in Christ, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Verse 9, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. Hmm. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. James chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Slow to wrath. James quoting Solomon almost. Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? Ah, we got to watch this. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. We fall into the trap of, remember the good old days? Remember when, remember when God did this? Remember how it used to be? All men saying, don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. Why were the former days better than these? That's an affront to God, is what he's saying. Live in today. 
God gave us today. We were created for such a time as this, Esther would say. God, you know, we can't do anything about changing the past. Enjoy those memories. Chances are you've got a clouded memory anyway, and you remember the good things, but you don't remember the crappy things. We can't worry about tomorrow. We don't know what's coming around the corner. We have today. Let's enjoy today what God has given us. How many of us ate today? Most of us? All of us? God's provided. How many are going home to a roof over our heads? Right, right. God's provided for us. Let's enjoy that. It's a gift that God has given us in today. Don't worry about what God used to do. I want to know what God's doing today. I want to get excited about what God is doing today. To say that God is moving less today than he moved 40 years ago, that's a mistake. We don't want to fall into that trap. Living today. Verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. Wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Money doesn't do that. Money doesn't give life. Wisdom does. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Wealth comes and goes. I think those of us who have lived a little bit of life see that. There are times when we have plenty, our needs are met, and we have an abundance. There's times when we are scratching and figuring out if there's still coins in the bottom of the couch. We've all experienced that. Wealth comes and goes. There is no satisfaction in that. But wisdom, wisdom cannot be taken. Wisdom is always with us once we've learned it. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. <clears throat> but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. You got plenty? Be joyful. In the day of adversity, when things are rough, consider this. God appointed both. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. God is in control of the events of our lives. He knows what, he, what we need in order to draw unto Him. He's going to put into our lives those things that are going to draw us closer to Him. It helps us to maintain perspective. Consider the wedding vows that we made. Nobody remembers that they actually said these things because you're all giddy in love. You're googly-eyed and you're thinking about the reception and what's going to happen after the reception and you're all excited. So you don't think that about what you're saying. I'm marrying you for better or for worse. I'm marrying you richer or poorer. And you don't think about it as you're saying it, but you experience all those things as you walk through life with one another. There are days that are better. There are days that are worse. There are days that are richer. There are days that are poorer. There are days in sickness. There are days in health. You don't think about those things, but you have to understand, like Solomon is saying here, God's ordained all those things, the day of, of great celebration and the days of hardship, in order that we may draw unto him. I have seen everything in my days of vanity, Remember Solomon, whatever he laid his eyes on, he allowed himself to have. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. 
right? That's the tough question. That's what everybody who's a non-Christian, when they're talking with Christians, they want to know how, if there is a loving God, could bad things happen to good people, right? That's the common question. How is it fair that this guy who is wicked and evil gets gets the promotion of all lifetimes and he's reigning over all and the guy who works his butt off all day long ends up in the dump? How is that fair? How is that just? How could there be a loving God? That's the question of verse 15. Why do bad things happen to good people? Psalm 73 gives us the answer. Oh yeah, I'm going to read a whole psalm too. Psalm 73, if you want to write it in the side, you can look at it later, but I'll just read it. It's a psalm of Asaph. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph's trying to answer, Why do bad things happen to good people? Or why are the wicked elevated? For there are no pangs in their death, the wicked but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Gluttony. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues walk through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely, I've cleansed my heart in vain. Now wash my hands in innocence. He's slipping, you hear it. For all day long I've been plagued, and I'm chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold... I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Asaph saying, I I don't get it. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. We'll stop it there. It wasn't until I gained the perspective of going into the house of God that it makes sense how for a moment it does appear as though the wicked may prosper. There is a day coming when all will be set right. And it's with the perspective of being in the sanctuary of God that sets us in the right frame of mind. Back to verse 16 of chapter 7. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? I think the the caveat there, or the the explanation will be, Solomon is saying, don't be self-righteous or proud. Why should you destroy yourself? Our righteousness is found in Christ. Do not be overly, overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp this. Want to get a hold of something? Here it is. And also not remove your hand from the other. He who fears God will escape them all. Back to where we began, 5-7. Fear, but fear God. Consider this. Put it into practice is what he's saying in 17 and 18. We are to have faith, a belief that is uh, shown by our works. Back to James, right? 
Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You hear that? Not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Ain't none of us righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we all are in need of a Savior. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I've proved by my wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. I hope young ladies, especially, we all need to hear this, young ladies who often find their value in what other people say about them. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, do not take to heart everything people say. We don't find our identity in what other people say about us. This is what I was talking about on Sunday as well. We find our identity in Christ. We're we're a son of God. We're a daughter of God. Find our identity in Him. Rest in that. It doesn't matter then. If we're secure in that, if we understand that, it doesn't matter what other people have to say about us. All we want to do is please Him. Our identity is found in Him. All right, we'll finish it up. Hang in there. Verse 24. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom and the reason of, thing, reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said there were things I couldn't figure out. He explored it all. He still found it wanting. And even, even in the greatest of wisdom, he wasn't able to understand it all. Now, in the next verse, he's going to talk about a woman. And the, the woman he's talking about is a harlot, one who prostitutes herself. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Don't you read through the Proverbs about the, how the harlot and her, she lures down the street and what have you. Uh, here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And I'm not going to touch that with a ten-foot pole. That's my wisdom for the evening. Other than to say what Solomon is saying is what you too said. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right, we'll move on. Last verse. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. I have found this out, he's saying. God made man upright, but, I've sought out, but they have sought out many schemes. That's the story of the Bible, right? God made man upright. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. But they sought out many schemes. Genesis chapter 3 through the end of the book. <laughs> that's, that's the truth of the Bible. There are no heroes in the Bible. We recognize that, right? Save one. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Every, the, the Bible accurately portrays that every man is a failure. 
What about King David? He was, he was loved by God. Yeah, he committed murder and adultery. What about Solomon? Yeah, he multiplied wives to the point that he had a thousand of them and, it, and they pulled his heart away from God. Daniel, maybe. We're not aware of anything that Daniel did that was incorrect. But he, even in his prayers, recognized his need and confessed his sin. There are no heroes in the Bible save one. His name is Jesus. And that's why we find our rest. It's why we find our peace. It's why we find our joy. It's why we find our hope in him and in him alone. Amen? Stuck in there. Good job. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that you've reached out to us. Thank you, Lord, for Solomon and the work that he's done that we might see of the traps of wealth, the wicked ways of this world, the oppression of this world, Lord, that all of it can be consumed and we can be fulfilled in knowing you and having a right relationship with you. I pray for anybody in this room that hasn't found that yet. They're still looking for satisfaction and longing. They're, they're looking to the world to find those things. I pray that right now they would open their heart Accept you as Jesus Christ, you Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, for the times that we have been gluttonous in the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, forgive us, Lord. When we've tried to satisfy that longing that you've placed with material things, Lord, forgive us. Help us to pursue holiness. Give us a hunger, an appetite for the things of you. For then we will be truly satisfied. In Jesus' name.